Please stand for the reading of the word. This is not the book of Daniel. For the first time in about three months. This is the gospel. I mean, this is the gospel writer's first letter, John. Very first verse of the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Then the last chapter of the book does not ever believeth in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whosoever does not believe has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled before your word as we open the pages and we read the great declarations and proclamations that are set forth by the apostle Our hearts believe the message. We have heard the gospel truth. We have responded in repentance and faith. We have been enabled by your spirit to hear and believe the gospel. We have been enabled by your spirit to repent of our sins and to humble ourselves before you. And Lord, we believe based upon the great promises that you have saved us. You have saved us from our sin. You have saved us from the condemnation, the penalty of sin. And you have saved us, Father, from ourselves and that which we would do on our own. And we have been enabled by your Spirit to come and to join a fellowship where there is joy and rejoicing because of the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life which you've given us. Father, we know and believe this. We come this morning to this passage of scripture to reinforce, to ground, to make more sound and more confident our understanding of what you have done for us in Christ and who Christ is. Be with us now as we examine a few things from your word. In Christ's name we ask, amen. We enjoy 
when we study the truths, the doctrines of the Christian faith, that to us, who are believers, and I think that would be almost everyone in this room, if not everyone, of course, we, we've heard these truths, we've heard these doctrines, we affirm them, we say we believe them, we have somewhat a capacity to explain what we believe and give a reason for the hope that is in us. We are able to make some kind of apologetic to others who do not believe. But when we back up and look at it a little bit, we realize that what we believe is profound mystery. Now, the Christian faith stands against all other religions of the world because we proclaim, believe, that what we have received comes directly from God the Father himself, God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the great creator God in his eternal beloved Son. And so we profess that we believe and trust in the person and the work of the Son of God. That's an abomination to the Jewish ear to think that God has someone equal to him and in their monotheistic way of thinking they cannot in any way imagine the notion of God having a son who is coterminous, co-equal in every way and who the Father sent to come to the earth in the flesh. In other words, God sent his son and his son became a full, complete, whole human being. In order to understand the Christian faith, you have to understand something about the flesh, the humanity. This is really more, I think, this morning as I was thinking about it a few moments ago, this is more of a communion meditation. Uh, we'll take communion here in a few moments but we're thinking about the incarnation, the mystery of God becoming human. And that's what we are celebrating and is being reinforced in our souls each and every time we take communion. We think of the blood of Christ, very human blood, and the body of Christ, a very human body. Uh, we won't talk about the other great doctrine of the scripture that involves the flesh, but it's the other side of the coin, and that is the resurrection of the body. If it is remarkable to think that God Almighty would become a man and come in human flesh, in a human body, as a human being with the full DNA complement of that which Adam had on his creation moment. If that's mysterious enough to contemplate, the notion that the corruption that comes from Adam's sin and the full dissolution of that body being raised to newness of life and taking on even a more human and a more whole body, a resurrected body, a changed body, a transformed body, that too is a mystery. Let's be, let's be honest with our, with our atheistic and pagan and unbelieving and infidel brothers and sisters. 
some of whom you might have had lunch with yesterday. We did. Those are fantastic things to believe. And in this age of rationalism, we've listened to the voice of Freud now for over a hundred years. And we really wonder about the human soul, exactly what comprises the human soul. The scriptures teach us about the flesh. The flesh is the bashar in the Hebrew, the sarks in the um, Greek. And it's that part of our nature which is the material stuff of the body. It's the skin, the bone, the blood. It's the physical body as created by God. And the fact that Christ came in that kind of a body is remarkable. That God would come and empty himself, humble himself, bring himself to be in that reality. The words are used, the form, the likeness. What we have in the incarnation is we have God working a cycle. God created man or Adam in his image. Adam marred and scarred and ruined that image in many ways by his sinful disobedience. So God comes in that same form in which Adam was created from the dust of the earth in order to reestablish the image of God. And that's what the scriptures teach us. Christ is the express image, the very exact replication. He is the very God, not God. By coming in the flesh, the Lord did not leave anything behind. He is still holy and completely God. But by coming in the flesh, he assumed a whole mankind, not merely one that was partial. In fact, in the first century, the eyewitnesses, and that's what, what uh, uh, John is emphasizing here, he's emphasizing that that which is from the beginning, that's Christ, We've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we have looked upon. I thought he already said we saw him with our eyes. What's the difference between seeing with your eyes and looking upon? Well, the word that's used for looked upon means to gaze. It means to stare. We didn't glance at Christ. We stared, we gazed, we studied Christ. That mystery to them was just beginning to break in that first century. The apostolic observation of the actual physical life of Christ for three years when he was among them, there was no question he was a human being. I mean, they handled him, they touched him, they knew. They saw him when he was tired, they went fishing with him, they went walking with him. They, had, they saw him in confrontations. They saw him in very tender and loving situations. They saw him perform miracles. They saw him do all sorts of things. And this was a man... If there ever was a man walking on the face of the earth, in true form, it was Christ himself. He was 100% wholly human. The mystery to them was, in what, how can this be the son of God? And their Jewish mind could not get around that. How is this the son of God? But here he forgave sins. 
Here he performed miracles. He made claims. He said he was sent from the Father. He described to them profound truths about the other world and the heavenly realm that they never knew. And he brought forth an ethic that was just almost impossible to imagine in human terms. The Beatitudes and countless other teachings of Christ transcended what human thought and human wisdom had brought to that point. But they stuck by their story. They will testify of his humanity, but he is life, the word of life. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. That with means face to face. Here is someone who is claiming to be God, fully God, the son of God, sent from God. And his reference was always to his heavenly father. He prayed, he talked to to his heavenly father, he talked about his heavenly father. And when he prayed for them, he prayed to his heavenly father about the disciples concerning them. And so in every way, there was obvious evidence that he was human, but there was growing evidence There was more manifestation. There was more revelation that he was, in fact, God, fully God. In the second generation, there arose several heresies. I won't name them because I never can keep them straight. I can't believe I got through systematic theology. I guess I crammed it in that day. But but they generally, essentially go like, here's three or four of them I thought of. One is that the notion arose that Jesus was half man, half God. Now that would make sense and there's a lot in mythology to commend that. That he was half man, half God. A composite. No, that was not it. I'm going to read in just a moment our confession of faith, what we believe out of the Westminster Confession of Faith about this. And you will notice as you listen to that confession of faith that it denies or supersedes with real truth All of these false notions that he's half man, half God. Well, that didn't seem to sit too well with many of the the Christians of these early heresies. Uh, They were believers. They were God-fearers, God-believers, Christ-believers, Bible-quoters. And they had their scriptures that made it appear that way. Another wrong notion was that since man is a psychosomatic unity, that is, there is a material part of man, his body, his flesh, his bones, his blood, about which we spoke, but there is this immaterial part of man. There's this part of man that is, that is spirit-like, soul-like. There is this consciousness. There is the, the emotions. It's inextricably bound to the physical, but it is, it is more of a spiritual dimension of man. So, ah, there's the key for understanding who Christ is, thought they. He's human in body and flesh, but his soul, his spirit, his immaterial part of his being, the psycho part, was divine. So we have two natures in Christ, but they are divided along the parts and the divisions of the human, the way we would think of it. You'll hear that refuted. Here's a better way to understand it. He appeared as a man. And we know our Old Testament to know that there's various apparitions and various theophanies and Christophanies and and the angels. It's possible 
in that spiritual world of all things being possible, it's possible that that he could appear completely as a man. He'd look like a man. He would sound like a man. He, he would take a punch like a man. He would eat a dinner like a man. He would lay down and take rest in the bottom of the boat in the middle of a storm. But he just appeared to be. He was all along a divine being and could not change in any other way and would not morph into any other way. He was still really a spirit. In fact, often it would be referred to as in a more crass term, it's a little more uh, Halloweenish to us today, but it was a good solid term for years, a ghost, a spirit, an apparition. And this is satisfactory to some minds, but it's not the teaching of scripture on the incarnation. Another theory was that here's the way we're going to get, be able to hold on to our monotheism. We're going to understand it this way. And that is that there's God the Father He's the creator, he's the divine being of the Old Testament, he's the one that gave the law, revealed to Moses, led the people, revealed and did all the great works that we read about, but then he transformed himself at a point in time and became a human being. And for a while, God was manifested in the flesh. And then, upon ascension, and upon the return of the Spirit of God, he became the Holy Spirit. So we have the Trinity, as it were, but it's across time. He was God the Father. Then he became God the Son, God in the flesh. No longer the Father, totally encased in the flesh. And then, by marvelous divine miracle, he once again, upon ascension, became the Holy Spirit. You'd be surprised how many people, I hear this preached on the television a lot. It's called modalism. And it's a, it, it, it's a view and an understanding of, of the incarnation and ultimately the Trinity. Yet, none of these satisfy. Let me read you a paragraph that is satisfactory, I think. It's in our confession of faith. All the elders in the room have given their assent and their subscription to this document. Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, and when the fullness of time had come, take upon himself man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of a man, yet of the verse sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person. So there's two natures fully and completely holy, authentically divine, and the same fully holy and authentically human. Two natures in one person. But these two natures have come together in this one person, and again I read, without conversion, we didn't convert God to a man and so forth, without composition, it isn't that they're put together half and half or some 
or some combination of that and, and confusion. Or confusion. And that is that you cannot distinguish that Jesus is a, a, a unique blob. Now the theologians call the being of Christ a tertian quid, a third thing. Not man, not God exclusively, but both entirely, completely, and at the same time. A theanthropic being is the big word. Theos means God, anthropos means man. The theanthropic being is a term that is, that is given to the divine son in his incarnation. And that is what we would confess. The person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now that brings us, that word mediator brings us to what we see in the scriptures about the particular incarnation. And that is the incarnation was necessitated in the mind and, and decree of God in order to accomplish an atonement. In order to accomplish an atonement, there had to be blood shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And the only way that God would say, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, would be for a death of a blood-shedding being. And it had to be Christ. It had to be the one we have just talked about. God in human flesh, in human body entirely in order to shed his blood. And we see that. I'll just read a, a couple of lines from several scriptures. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was manifested in the flesh. In John, everyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is antichrist. Paul affirms in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 2 that Christ did his work in the body of his flesh. Paul says again in Romans, sending Christ in the flesh, God condemned sin in the flesh. And Peter Christ died for us in the flesh. Thus, Jesus, God, without ceasing to be God, without any uh, diminishing of his deity, became man in order that he might atone for our sins. So when Anselm asked the ancient question, why the God-man, cur Deus homo, he was asking, why was there an incarnation? There was an incarnation because in order to save us, redeem us, there had to be a bloodshed. So those that deny the full humanity of Christ really have no place to go with respect to the atonement. The atonement is the shedding of blood for our sins. And to conclude and to summarize, we go back to our confession. This time we go to the larger the larger and the shorter, the larger catechism. You know what the larger catechism was designed to do? It was designed to give outlines for sermons for the preachers to preach. That's right. The shorter catechism was given to catechize the children and the, and the new believers in the basics of the faith. And we all know, have studied through the shorter, but the larger was given that the ministry might have a outline and a subject matter to preach from the pulpit Sunday by Sunday. Oh, how well have we done? But 
we're going to try a little something today. I'm going to read about four question and answers from that larger catechism. Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. How did Christ become the Son of God? How did being the Son of God become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. Uh, that verse right there, that, that answer right there is what makes this a Christmas sermon. Why was it necessary that the mediator should be God? It was necessary that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. Give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, his obedience, his intercession, and to satisfy God's justice. Procure his favor, purchase a unique people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Amen. That's not in the text, I added that. Why was it necessary that the mediator should be man? First question asked, why should he be God? Now, why should he be man? It was necessary that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer, and make intercession for us in our nature. Have a fellow feeling of our infirmities that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness to the throne of grace. Why was it necessary that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was necessary that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should be both God and man. And this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on us as the works of the whole person. And here is the final question. Who was our mediator? Why was our mediator called Jesus? Our mediator was called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. When the angel appeared to Joseph and gave, assigned Jesus' name, he didn't assign him the name of some Old Testament prophet. He didn't call him Joseph Jr. He didn't give him any other name but the name of Savior, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. That's really all we're talking about. He might in all things have the preeminence. Jesus. Tommy.